I don't know uh, how many of you give much thought to the idea of success. If I was to ask you what does success mean to you, don't know what thoughts would go through your mind. If I asked you, do you consider yourself to be successful? How would you answer that and what would go into that response? If you think of your own children even, most of us would probably say we would like our children to be successful. And as parents, if you were to answer that question, so what would that look like in your son and your daughter? Would it be the same thing that you've looked for in your own life, or would it maybe be slightly different? Success, I think, in our, our culture is, is measured in many ways. Uh, for some people, it's the number of initials that may follow your name. I have two. Bachelor of Education degree. That's about as loudly as I can blow that horn, and it's not very loud. For some people, it may be the number of books they've written or whether or not they've been published. Um, perhaps the number of trophies a person may have won. Maybe uh, it's your grade point average or the university that you were able to to get into. Maybe it's the size or the profits of a company that you're part of or a company that you own. Maybe it's the size of your church. Maybe it's the diversity of your financial portfolio that you point to as success. Some list of achievements, maybe, whatever they be. I think our culture sort of has this idea that so when people look at me, they will see a successful woman or they will see a successful man. And very often, I think, in life, we tend to put a whole pile of weight and a whole pile of trust in that kind of success. Uh, if you uh, were to Google the word success and look for images, you will note this morning actually that I had a large number of highly engaging clips and slides that did not get into the computer for some reason, so you'll have to, occasionally I will tell you to imagine what they might be. <laughs> and so you can make up your own picture. But Google images often depict success using images of stairways or ladders to be climbed. There's a lot of images in Google about success that show people scaling mountains. That success is very often depicted as a destination to be reached, something to strive for, to strive after. 
And as I thought about that a little bit the last couple of weeks, it struck me, and, and maybe people could argue with me on this, but the theme of success in the way that we often think about it within the context of this world is never articulated as a goal or even the goal of a Christ-like, spirit-filled life. In, in a way, our picture of, of success often, I think, stands in contrast to this sense of finding contentment in a quiet, peaceful life lived in relationship to our God and lived in relationship to one another. The gospel presents, I think, a very different way of thinking. And the gospel presents a very different way of living. It's a life measured according to a very different standard. And it's a life obeying a very different master. And yet, I know if you look at the Bible, you will find words such as striving, run the race, persevere, be steadfast. But the striving in the New Testament is all about our desire that for our life, that we would be continually being transformed into the image of Jesus. That's the striving. It's about pursuing a lifestyle that has things like humility, generosity, gentleness, patience, goodness, thankfulness, to heed the voice of God in our life is to listen when he pushes us in that direction. And I think in 2017, at times, it's about hanging on to faith in a world that increasingly wants to dismiss it. I would say success within the context of the New Testament is much more to do about character and virtually little or nothing to do with whatever accomplishments you may have within this life. Paul warned young Timothy that a sense of worldly success can easily creep into the church. He said that you're going to find people in the church, Timothy, who are interesting or interested in putting on a show of godliness for the purpose of acquiring wealth. And then he says to Timothy, you know what, Timothy, true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. True godliness with contentment is, in fact, a treasure. Now, it's true that Paul also spoke fairly strongly about the fact that Christians should be willing to work that we should be, you might say, gainfully employed. We should not be slackers. 
So the sense of actually working to earn a living is also very biblical. But I think that in that pursuit of earning a living, we constantly have to ask ourselves, what is it that drives us? What is it that motivates us? What is it that we're looking for? In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 11, it says this. Make it your goal in life to live a quiet life, minding your own business and working with your hands just as we instructed you before. So that your daily life may, and it does not say impress those around you, but it does say so that your life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. If you look at Paul's own life. And if you were to read Philippians chapter 3, Paul in that chapter talks about what in his day would have been impressive accomplishments, impressive credentials that he would have been seen in the world in which he lived as highly successful. He was highly intelligent, he had influence, and then he met Jesus. Or you might put it the other way, Jesus interrupted his life. And when I read Paul's conversion, it's almost like Jesus interrupted Paul's life in a way that Paul could not say no to. And so when Paul looks at his former life, he says this, and I know this is Paul, and Paul is unique, but there are some of what Paul says that I think we can listen to as we go about our life. He says this, but whatever were gains to me, those things that previously made me successful, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them, I don't know what your translation says, but some of them say garbage. I consider those things that I held so dear, I consider them to be garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Jesus. Yes, I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to participate in his sufferings. I want to become like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. And then he says this in a fairly humble way, not that I have already obtained all of this. It's kind of like Paul saying, I realize that my life is still working this out. I have not already obtained this. I have not arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold 
of me. So I want us to think about in all the other endeavors of life, all those other things that occupy our time, those things we do, those things we do to earn a living, do it in a way that you still press hold, press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of you. And he says, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. In an ideal world, a beautiful slide at this point would appear on the screen behind me. On that slide, you would see a U.S. coin. I actually forget what coin it was, but actually it doesn't really matter. Because on that coin, it says, in God, we trust. That inscription apparently first appeared on one or two U.S. coins, I think, in the late 1800s. And then in 1938... The U.S. legislated that all coins must bear that inscription, in God we trust. In 1957, Eisenhower passed legislation requiring that that same phrase, in God we trust, should appear on all paper currency. Now, I've always seen it on coins. I actually don't recall when I have U.S. money in my hand ever looking for the In God We Trust inscription, but it's there. Now, the truth is that in 1957, uh, we would have called that the period of the Cold War between the West and the USSR. And so... I don't want to say that this was truly a religiously motivated decision, but in a way it was because Eisenhower saw it as another way of distinguishing the United States from the state-sanctioned atheism of the USSR. To me, the fact that the U.S. currency still bears this inscription is pretty noteworthy. And it certainly has faced opposition through the years. Those people who have said, eh, we don't know if we want in God we trust on our currency. Supreme Court Justice William Brennan in 1983 said this, you know what? Slogans such as in God we trust have, and this is such an interesting statement, they have lost any true religious significance. Well, I'm going to say, if in God we trust has lost any religious significance, then it might as well not be there. And you would think, well, that would have been a good reason to get rid of it. But I think at that time they weighed the political fallout and decided, you know what? It doesn't really mean anything to most people. Just leave it be. 
But as I thought about it, the inscription in God we trust is such an incredibly powerful declaration. That that phrase, in God we trust, lies at the heart of the Christian faith. And as I thought about it, it quietly asks me the question, Doug, in your life, is that really true? The other thing that struck me as being amazing is this inscription is significant significant because it's placed on the very thing that people tend to look to in terms of their trust and security, money. And I think it's like God saying to us, yes, you can work for this. It's good for you to make a living working so that you can provide for your family. Don't put your faith in it. Don't put your trust in it. Don't have all the striving in your life. Be towards money or what it brings. And I think every time you look at a coin, if our coins would say, just a reminder, Doug, in God, we trust. I mean, that would be a good thing. I We don't have that on our Canadian money, but we do have in our Canadian anthem, God keep this land glorious and free. Amazing statement in an increasingly secular world that we can sing that. At some point, somebody's going to challenge that big time. It'll be interesting to see what happens. God says that we are to be thankful that we have been given the wherewithal, I would say, to earn money. And God would say, steward that money well. A few weeks ago, I, I spoke about the three S's. I called them squandering, which is kind of like wasting it. It just goes. Stockpiling it, putting it aside. And then I talked about stewarding. I think squandering and stockpiling tend to be the the ways of the world. Uh, Stewarding, I believe, reflects a biblical understanding of how we are to think about the money that we have. I'm going to repeat a few statistics I gave a few weeks ago. 80% of Canadians claim no charitable giving. So that does not mean they don't necessarily ever give to charities, but they don't claim it on their tax forms. 80% of them don't. Of the 20% who do claim charitable donations, 25% of that number account for 83% of all charitable giving. So you're now looking at a fairly small slice of, let's say, the Canadian public. And I think the thing that surprised me the first time I looked at that was to be, so 80% didn't claim, 20% did, and then a quarter of those account for 83%. To get into that quarter, you would have had to give 358 bucks that year. 
roughly 30 bucks a month. I was actually shocked by that. About 40% of all charitable donations go to religious organizations. And that would be primarily to churches. But there are an awful lot of other faith-based organizations who are significant recipients of the stewardship of the people of God and even the stewardship of people who may not attach themselves to faith. Even in our own city, when I think of places like the Gospel Mission, Freedom's Door, Child of Mine, which operates kind of, well, it's not, well, sort of. It is part of Willow Park Church, but it's far beyond that. Bibles for Missions. Gary, would, Gary and Belinda would know all about that. MCC, Salvation Army, Okanagan Valley Pregnancy Care Center, Gardam Lake. That there are many people, even with no religious affiliation, who donate to these organizations because they appreciate what they bring to the city. That we are a better city because of these faith-based organizations. In fact, many people outside the church would be saying, well, you know what, that's what the church should be doing. And they should be doing more of that. And there's probably an argument to be made there. It's interesting, on a chart ranking cities and provinces based on charitable giving, Quebec ranked very low. The most charitable province was... I don't know if anybody would want to guess. Manitoba. And the most charitable cities were places like Abbotsford, Chilliwack Mission area, southern Manitoba, Steinbach area, that when you kind of compared them to the rest of the cities, they blew them out of the water. So in Quebec, many of the cities, let's say maybe it was 100 bucks on average. In Abbotsford Mission Area, it was like 700 and something. This is all an average. If you want to know what Kelowna was, uh, it was about 400. Dollars donated per year towards charitable causes. And I guess what struck me is about some of that is that Quebec is the province most actively engaged in promoting secularism. Of all the provinces in our country, the province most eager to get God out of the public sphere is Quebec. And on a ranking of charitable giving, that province was very, very low. And if you know southern Manitoba, if you know the Fraser Valley, those are regions with significant faith communities. And so I think it's fair to say that people of faith are more likely to let go of what God has given them. 
But I want to caution us before we pat ourselves on the back too vigorously. I suggested three weeks ago that most Canadians give from what you might call their excess. And I think in many cases that is also true within the church of God. That people give of their excess. And I want to suggest this morning that giving from our excess is not a biblical principle. It's not that we shouldn't give, and it's not that we don't have more than we need. But giving from our excess is not what I read within the context of the New Testament. Cheerful giving is a biblical concept. Giving as you have determined in your heart to give is a New Testament and biblical concept. Part of being a new creation in Jesus, I want to say, is the freedom to give, not the obligation to give. The Old Testament both mandated and regulated giving. You might say it was giving under the law. It was giving according to rules. The New Testament also addresses giving, and it certainly gives examples of generous people, a widow who had very little who wanted to give. The example of a Macedonian church or groups of churches in Macedonia who were very, very poor. And yet when they heard about the famine and the troubles of the church in Jerusalem, the Macedonian churches said, we want to contribute. Out of their poverty, they said, we want to contribute. And if you read Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 8 and 9, an awful lot of the things that we talk about in the church about giving come from those chapters. And Paul is kind of saying to the Corinthian church, we've got poor brothers and sisters in Christ all over Macedonia who want to give to help their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And he challenges the Corinthian church to step up to the table. And in those chapters, you will hear phrases like, God loves a cheerful giver. Give as you have decided in your heart to give. At one place he says, put aside every week an offering. And I want you to get this. It's not an offering for the local church. He says, put aside this offering when I come I will take it. You can grab a few other people who you trust, and we will bring this gift to our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem who are in the middle of a drought. And so I always think we have to be careful when we take these phrases to pull them out of the context in which they were written. And so you take a verse and you say, ah, that's the principle. 
I, I think we're in error when we do that. However, God loves a cheerful giver. God wants us as children of God to make decisions in our heart and mind about what we want to give. At times I am, uh, well, quite often astounded by how much or how little I know. When I started thinking about this message, I thought I would sort of park on this idea of first fruits. If you read the Old Testament, there, there's a fair amount of conversation about setting aside first fruits. It's spoken of very often within the context of harvest in an agricultural uh, context about putting it aside first. And I thought, yeah, that's, that is the New Testament principle as well. And then I began to start reading passages that talk about first fruits and realized that it never was mentioned in the context of money. It was mentioned in relationship to people. That Paul would quite often talk when he went from church to church. This is the early church. And he talked about people in this community being the first fruits of many who would follow. He's talking about Christians. So we would be the continuing first fruits from that early church. It's also referenced when Paul talks about Jesus as being the first fruits of the resurrection of which there will also be those who follow and will experience that. But it's not used in relation to money. And when I was reading that and reading what people write, I was a bit disappointed because I thought, oh my goodness, there goes, the, there goes the punch of the message. And I came up with, well, I didn't come up with, I found this, and I, I, I apologize for not knowing who the writer of this was, but he was talking about first fruits, and he said this. If the usage of the term first fruit in the New Testament is to be considered, first fruit in the church age, that's us, means that those who were saved in the early church were a promise that others would follow. And you might even say that was a promise given to Abraham in the Old Testament. And Jesus' resurrection is a promise that we, too, will be resurrected. Any other use of first fruits is either, this is a bit harsh, but abusive or careless. And then he goes on to say, ironically, what the New Testament teaches about giving is actually more extreme. It says, God wants all of us. This would include giving for a purpose. This would include giving according to the leading of the Holy Spirit. This would include giving for the spread of the gospel and the aid of the needy. This would be giving cheerfully. 
Whatever you choose to call that, it's simply Christian giving. So this morning, while first fruits may not be a New Testament principle or command, I do want to suggest this. You can leave it. You can disregard it. When it comes to giving, I think first fruits is a good practice. Giving from a cheerful heart and choosing to give regularly, I believe is a good and godly thing because there are always legitimate needs around us in the kingdom of God within the church and beyond. And that in a way, setting aside money for kingdom work is saying, God, I am not going to wait to see if there is excess at the end of the month. I'm not going to wait to see, sorry, I'm not going to wait until our mortgage is paid off or our credit cards are paid off. I'm not going to wait until my partner gets into the workforce or one of us gets a better job. I'm not going to wait until... It's making simply a statement, God, I am not going to wait. I want to steward that which you have given me. I'm going to faithfully steward my money Take you at your word, God, that you will take care of everything else. In Willow Park Church, pastors do not know who the givers are or who gives what. The only people in Willow Park Church who may have access to that information are the two people who are involved in giving tax receipts. I think it is so wise, actually, for the church to guard that information. That there is great wisdom in the not knowing. But this morning, I simply want to encourage those of you who are regular givers to continue to give. And I want to encourage sporadic givers or maybe people who might say, well, I don't really give to the church. I like to give to other charitable things, other worthy causes. I encourage you if you're a sporadic giver or perhaps not a giver to begin maybe a little conversation, first of all, in your own heart. That verse where Paul says, you know, decide in your heart, each one of you, what you're going to give. Now, that was for a special cause. But I think it's worthwhile us asking that question, starting in our own hearts and then perhaps in your marriage and in your home, and ask the question, what would it mean for us to become cheerful and faithful givers? At this point, another 
image was going to appear on the screen, but I will reference it. It is simply the Willow Park Church homepage. So if you typed in Willow Park Church, this is what would come up. And along the top of the web page, there's about five or six words. One of them is simply the word give. And if you click on that, which was going to be the next slide, it shows various ways that people can give within Willow Park Church. Uh, for, for many years, uh, Eva and I filled out the little white envelopes, of which we still have them and we hand them out. Um, and then eventually we stopped using the envelopes and just would put our check right into the bag without putting it in an envelope. And then a couple of years ago, maybe it's not even two, somebody had said to me, Doug, you know what, you should consider giving through auto debit. And I thought, ooh, that sounds sort of impersonal and I like the feeling of putting my money into the offering bag. But I also asked myself, is, is part of your enjoying putting the offering in the money bag is that it could be that quite a few other people will see you do that. And I realized that over the last few years, more and more people within the church, within Willow Park, have opted for auto-debit. And in a way, it's like saying, God, first fruits. Going to give it to you right up front. Use it in your kingdom. And so if you sometimes wonder, wow, there's a lot of people that don't seem to be putting something in the offering bag, it could be that a lot of those people are actually giving by auto debit. And in a way, it's... Uh, it's a statement, no matter how you give, I would believe, um, and I'm not saying first fruits is what you have to go home having ringing in your head, but it is a way of actually saying, God, I'm going to trust in you. In God, I will trust. There's another word written on U.S. coins. You know what it is? Somebody shouts it out, that's fine. It's the word liberty. And I thought, what a powerful comment. That if truly we trust in God, we will actually be at liberty to let go of some other things we hang on to tightly. I'm going to stop there this morning. Um, I think there is freedom that comes to us when we relax our grip on what I'll call as the almighty dollar and truly say, God, I'm going to put my trust in almighty God. And so I just encourage you this morning. This is kind of going to be the last of conversations that have had a fair amount to do with money over the last few weeks, but I encourage you 
to think those thoughts about God. Help me become a cheerful giver. Help me begin to have those conversations if I or we've avoided them. And that it would really be an exercise of our faith in the God in whom we trust. Josh, I'm going to invite you to come back. Truth is, we're going to find our God to be faithful. That he is an amazing God. And we live in a part of the world where our definition of excess would look so much different than somebody who lived in a different country. And I just encourage us to relax a bit of our hold and to be generous. God, I thank you for the truth of your word. At the very heart of your word, God, is the sense that you want us to be people who experience freedom. And sometimes we hang on to things, God, that we think will help us in some way feel free, and they don't. So I pray that the Spirit of God would speak into our hearts, speak into our minds. And Father, help us look uh, beyond ourselves, sometimes beyond our families, and say, how could I be a partner in the kingdom work of God? Thank you for your presence here this morning for the presence of your spirit within your church. Father, as we close, I want to lift up a prayer for Carly and her children. Father, would you rest over them? Would you protect them? Would you hold them, God, in the palm of your hand? Thank you, God, as we leave, that you walk with us You are our God. You are our living God. You are our living hope. And so we praise you, Lord Jesus, this morning. Amen.